Ajahn Chah used to speak about letting go and there was a quote that he would say a lot. He'd say, um, if you let go a little, you have a little bit of peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you have complete peace. And so in connection with what you were asking earlier this evening is how is it that letting go is connected to the um, instructions of of bringing mindfulness to the present moment and um, focusing on what's happening and not getting distracted. That's a really important question because the instructions of meditation are not about letting go of immediately. The letting go is what happens as a result of cultivating. So it's the result. It's not the action. And so if we look at that instruction, if you let go a little, you have a little bit of peace. Um, You know, for me, I can relate to that by um, when we have precepts, when we keep boundaries, when we live with integrity, then some of the, um, the kinds of things that we feel regretful about by engaging in unskillful actions through transgressing the precepts are things that we don't do, and as a result of that, the kind of peace that we get... Um, is the result of letting go of those kinds of actions. Okay? So, the effort to keep the precepts is to let go of the behaviors that transgress the precepts is a way of having a certain kind of peace. And, I mean, it's not, you know, when I look at the people who are dealing with addictions to substances and things like this, this is really something to celebrate. It's not a small thing at all. It's really important. But in the overall spectrum of things, it's like it's putting you at a level where you're able to make choices in your life rather than being obsessed by um, compulsive kinds of behavior that's kind of dragging you around and destroying your life. But still, the kind of basic gist of what it is to be a human being is still there to deal with. And with it comes the kind of vicissitudes of the heart moving and opening and feeling pain as well as joy. So the first kind of whole layer of suffering, of letting go a little to me, has to do with making um, choices uh, around boundaries. The second layer has to do with um, some of the emotional patterns that we have. So many of us have belief systems or tapes or we have um, a kind of a wallpaper that is the background noise of who we think we are. And it's, it's so frequent and so much part of what we are experiencing that we don't even register that that's what's going on. We don't really have a sense that, you know, how harsh it can be or critical or how... Um, how unkind, you know. And it's so common, and it's so much what we do, what we think, what we... that we don't have much 
perspective on it or contrast around it or leverage with it or um, vigilance to know that this is absolutely not acceptable to relate to oneself in this way. You know, this is not helpful. So the second kind of letting go, letting go a lot, is to really begin to get a sense of the emotional patterns and tapes and belief systems that we have and to see them for what they are and not to follow them. To start waking up to the wallpaper and to start having some kind of a register that when the wallpaper is is um, slanderous, when it's rude, when it's mean, when it's belittling, when it's shaming, um, none of this is stuff to follow, to believe in, to identify with, to uh, say, you know, this is really who I am, you know. And so then we can shift from having negative beliefs about ourselves, a negative kind of sense of perceptions and negative thoughts about ourselves to something that's more skillful, more wholesome, more positive, more loving. And it's not only more loving towards ourselves, then it ends up being more kind and more kind and skillful for others as well. So, I mean, for most... That's not always the case, but a lot of us are actually harder on ourselves than we are on the people around us. But what happens is is, is, is that when we start to get a little bit um, afraid, then the way that we're negative towards ourselves starts spilling out towards the people around us, particularly the ones that we're closest to. So when we um, make a commitment to waking up to this whole level, then there's a whole other level of letting go of identifying with that and as a result of not identifying with that then there's more skillfulness in the way that we're responding to it so the meditation instruction is to watch to be present to be attentive okay the result of that is we see the places where we have identified and in seeing the places where we have identified, then the result of letting go comes as a result of cultivating the faculties of meditation and concentration in the present moment. So the letting go happens as a result of, rather than as, as it's not what the meditation instruction, the first step is. It's, 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 it's the result. Then when we look at the last kind of thing when you let go completely then you have complete peace and freedom and then we come back to Deepama and her life story and what was happening for her I mean I find her her story amazing because you know I mean one of those things that she had was just you know would be devastating for most of us you know and she had a whole collection of them in a you know in a concentrated period of time and and the result was is, is that her whole mind-body system basically kind of collapsed under the despair of what it was that she was having to navigate. So the grief was devastating for her. The loss she experienced was absolutely devastating, and her health was affected, everything was affected. You know, she couldn't stop crying, you know, for a really, really long time. She just, she was just absolutely miserable. So her you know, kind of doing the best that she could in this life and having all of these things happen, the death of these children, the death of her husband, the loss of her her parents, and, you know, it doesn't talk about what it was like having in-laws that, you know, strategically planned to have her husband abandoned you and what it would be like to live knowing that that's what they wanted, you know. 
and you know all of it all of it is is a lot so and and the effect that it had on her system was is that her whole system crashed you know her health crashed her mind crashed her body crashed everything crashed there was just very little very little um, brightness light clarity she just thought she was going to die and she wanted to die she was hoping she would die there was nothing left So when she went into the meditation experience from that initial process of despair, you know, her mind did concentrate, and um, it concentrated so profoundly that when she was bitten by the dog, she wasn't experiencing the sense contact to know that that's what had happened. So this is not an ordinary mind state, you know. Normally we he feel things that happen to us. And so, you know, she wasn't able to stay at the retreat because of the medical treatment that she needed to have in order to follow up with all of that. But she stayed with the meditation practice and the instructions of stabilizing the mind and focusing the mind, watching the three characteristics of impermanence, of um, things are not inherently satisfactory, and there's not any inherent substance or self that you can locate in anything. The three characteristics were the kinds of things that she was constantly watching in her meditation practice. So that the kind of excruciating layer of, of overwhelm started to ease out. She had a little bit more stability in her mind, in her practice, and she was functional again in terms of having a little bit more health and a little bit more capacity to deal with her daily life. And then the other retreat happened. So... In meditation practice, we bring the focus of attention to what it is that we're experiencing and allowing also to include the reaction that we're having to what we're experiencing. And as the muscle of mindfulness gets stronger, where there's the ability to direct attention and sustain attention and to respond to what is arising also with direct attention and sustaining attention then what is happening is is, is, is that we're seeing clearer and clearer and clearer what it is that we're experiencing and the, the, the muscle of mindfulness begins to develop, gets stronger and the lens begins to become more focused. So we're not going into a absorption state where we're absorbing into what it is that we're experiencing at the exclusion of everything else. But it's like we're cranking up the microscope where we're seeing things in a clearer and more refined way. And as we are able to see more clearly what is going on, then the tenacity of ignorance, the way in which there is the just the natural grasping at the aggregates as a function of ignorance and as a function of habit, begins to be seen for what it is, where we can observe the way the mind grasps. And in observing the way the mind grasps and observing the way 
that all of these aggregates, the experience of the body, in, and grabbing hold of it as a permanent, as a place where there's satisfaction, as a, as a something that we can find ourselves, the aggregate of feeling of Vedana, the aggregate of perception, the aggregate of the ideas or the formations or the stories that we have or the associations that we have, you know, even the sense consciousness that arises that is able to know these things, that the clarity emerges where it becomes really obvious there's nothing in this world to hold on to. Nothing in this world is worth holding on to. And as the, the mind gets clearer and stronger and more focused, as one is seeing the habits of the mind, which is to grasp and to identify and to try and locate oneself, then these other stages of insight occur where there's the kind of like pulling away or drawing back or feeling the kind of the distaste of, of the world. And all that one is longing for is to find a place of, of peace and freedom. And so the, the energy is focused and clarified. And that focus and clarification of the energy allows one to really stay present and not, there's, there's no, it's like the mind does not, does not distract. It's just absolutely still and collected and present and focused. And as the conditions of the enlightenment factors come into fulfillment, into fruition, there's a ripening. And the ripening is like a severing of a veil of illusion. It's like a piercing. It's like a penetrating. A veil of illusion that has been habitually associated with seeing things in an, in an unclear way. And when this veil of illusion is penetrated, then that is the opening of the eye of the Dhamma. That's the first stage of awakening. And in this classical experience of enlightenment, there are many different things that happen. But one of the things that happens is, is that there are certain elements of the, that get uprooted. And so one of the things gets uprooted is, 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 the, is the belief in a permanent self. And one of the things that gets uprooted is the doubt that there's freedom, that there's actually a possibility to um, be free from suffering. And one of the things that gets uprooted is the, is, the, is, the, is the wrong understanding of rites and rituals, that somehow through doing rites and rituals and ceremony, that that in and of itself is going to be a path that's going to be able to take one to freedom. So these three things kind of shift out of one's mental experience. And they're like, they're gone. So in our ordinary meditation experience, we can have moments of clear seeing and moments where there's no suffering and moments where it, everything feels like a just incredible clarity and no grasping. But these moments of clear seeing are different than the, the, the stages where one arrives at a place where certain elements of the mind are uprooted and gone, and they're gone for good. 
it's like they don't come back. But interestingly enough, you can have the sense of permanent sense of self uprooted, but the experience of conceit hangs on until the last the last stage. So the the sense of a separate sense of self can be seen through, but there can be subtle manifestations of that that continue that need to weaken at the successive stages of awakening. So what has let go of is a really profound question. And I think it's ignorance. What has been let go of is ignorance. Believing the stuff that we have believed for a very, very, very long time that is simply not true. And so it's almost as if there's a kind of like a rewiring of the system. You know, something is rewired. And it takes a while to feel out or to figure out what actually has been rewired and how the whole system responds and what things look like. Or it can, you know. As well as the fact that you can have this fundamental rewiring on this kind of a level and still have psychological work that needs to be attended to. And that's the thing that I think for most people in a contemplative tradition is such a shock. Because there's such a deep-seated belief that you can experience a state of enlightenment and somehow expect that the wisdom that comes from the eradication of ignorance is going to translate across all the other levels of what it is to be a human being. And for most people, I would say a majority of people, that's not the case. It's exceptionally rare that the experience of awakening translates across all the other levels of human development And so what ends up is an integrated being. And so that's why, you know, Jack Cornfield's book is so fabulous, um, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, because he's interviewing people who have had classic stages of enlightenment. It's like, you know, this is not, you know, snow jobs. These are people who have really genuinely experienced stages of awakening and still go back into therapy. Because there's issues in their psychological makeup, in their personal development, that have not integrated with the eradication of the ignorance that the awakening um, opened up for them. So, in a way, it puts a question mark around this statement. If you let go a little, you'll have a little bit of peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have complete peace. And if you let go completely you'll have complete peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. Because what it actually is opening up is that there are different kinds of enlightenment. And this enlightenment that Ajahn Chah was speaking about is the kind of enlightenment that takes place when there's an eradication of ignorance. And the kind of enlightenment that Jack Cornfield is talking about is the kind of integration that happens when you bring that insight into the other spheres of one's whole human being. And so for me, that is why I feel more interested 
in responding skillfully to what is arising rather than to focus on a meditation technique. Because a meditation technique tends to categorize everything in one basket. In the basket of phenomena that is arising that needs to be observed and not identified with and attached to. And that as we are able to see the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and inherently non-self characteristics of all of these phenomena, that that is where the mind opens to. And that has been the truth of the contemplative traditions for as long as they've been going on, or at least in the Buddhist tradition, that's the element of it. But where I have seen an enormous amount of work has needed to take place is not just in observing, but in interacting in order to bring about the development and the integration into certain psychological parts of oneself that somehow were left lacking. Now, I don't know if this is more a feature of our postmodern world than it was, you know, before the modern era when people had villages and clans and they had extended families and, you know, they lived in, in and they worked in the fields and they didn't have industrialization and they weren't tweeting and twittering and, and Facebooking and, 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 and had a deeply dislocated sense of who they were in relationship to other people. But what I do know is in the postmodern world, we don't know who we are. We don't know where we belong. We don't know where we fit into this world. And so it's not just simply a question of letting go of our sense of self. We have to develop it. We have to actually know who we are, where we belong, where we fit, how we express ourselves. We have to know what motivates us. We have to feel our connection with our own body and our anchoring to the earth. And it's not as if we have to do that in order that we can then let go. But these things are parallel processes that both have their own developmental sequence, which are mutually supportive of each other. I can't, you know, for me it was just so humbling. It was so incredibly humbling. So many years of meditation, and I did not know some of the things that were motivating me. I didn't have access to my own fears. I didn't know there was sadness that was layered with anger, and underneath all of that was self-hatred. I didn't have access to any of it. And then I started bringing in other modalities that were more geared towards working with stuff like that. And I was, I was humbled, I was surprised, I was awed, I was amazed, and I was rejoicing by the kind of inner peace that I experienced was I was able to both get clear about some of the stuff that I had been sitting on for decades, as well as the clarity then freed up the energy of my mind-body system so that I could experience deeper states of insight and deeper states of non-self and what that meant in terms of how I experienced myself in relationship to the world. So... For me, it's like the letting go, because it's not as if the work that I did was wasted, but the letting go then enabled me to pick up. And then the picking up and developing and the cultivating then allowed deeper layers of letting go. 
they were mutually supportive of each other. They were not mutually exclusive. I mean, what I found so incredibly inspiring about Deepama was her her presence. You know, so when I was at university, I'd heard about her from Jack Engler. So Jack had gone to India to to do research. He was working on a PhD thesis on the nature of self and how different experiences of meditation affect that. So his thesis was involved with looking at these things and so he went to India to interview different um, highly accomplished meditation masters and he spent a lot of time with Deepama because she was the most accomplished meditation person that he could have access to. So he spent, I think, three months or more, or on, at least on one trip and maybe on several trips, you know, doing a PhD thesis around quantifying things that she was exper- experiencing in terms of the nature of the sense of self. And so he had a lot of experience of being around her, and also with Manindraji. And, and so when I was in the class in 1979, it was just, he was there as a visiting lecturer, and he was telling... He was basically a, 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 I mean, he was talking about the Four Noble Truths and the Three Characteristics and the Five, this, you know, he was talking about the different structures that were presented in the Buddhist teachings, but he was doing it in a lecture theater rather than in a retreat context, you know, so, um, anyway, in that, in that class, he talked about Deepama, and I just was really, I really wanted to meet her. And he told us all these stories about all these psychic powers that she had and and stuff that she would do and and you know and they would have you know people verify it you know so they'd have one person sitting with her in one room and the door was closed and then they'd have another person in another room and 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 she'd be in both places at the same time you know or you know and, and so he would he was telling all of these stories about all this stuff that she would do and how mischievous she was and how playful she was and how you know how just how so lovely she was you know and I just I just had such this incredible feeling I just wanted I wanted to meet this person you know I wanted how is it possible that somebody can be like that you know so you know I wanted to you know for me I had the idea of being a nun then and I wanted to see whether that was a viable thing for me. And I wanted to meet Deepama and Ajahn Shah and Ajahn Buddhadasa, some of the other meditation masters that I'd heard about. And and so I decided to go on a pilgrimage to India and Thailand and see if I could meet them. And so I did. You know, I went. And, you know, so I'd heard all these things about Deepama, all of these things, and I really, really, really wanted to meet her. And what was so amazing about her was the way her power manifested. You know, so I grew up in California with some kind of a, an idea of women as, a, you know, powerful women were like Amazons, you know. I don't know, I had this image of a powerful woman with somebody who would jump in the back of a pickup truck with a chainsaw. You know, that was an, you know, that was powerful. That was a strong woman, you know. And here's Deepama, who's like, you know, well under five feet tall, and I don't know how much she weighed, but like, you know, she was tiny, you know, and yet there was this kind of aura about her which was just exuding this 
unbelievable presence. And it was a mixture of this stillness, this incredible stillness, and this love. Like, it wasn't just like liking, you know, that things were okay. It was like this saturated sense of loving. And that, and that, and that she could see you so clearly. She knew so clearly what was going on. But there was this absolute, all-pervasive sense of love. So it was amazing to me that of all of the things, you know, she had attained all of the psychic powers. She had attained to the state of an anagami. She was just one state belief being a completely realized being, you know? And the thing about her that was most impressive was her love. That totally blew me away. You know, that that was actually the manifestation of what happens when you practice, when you let go. At least it was with her. That's the way it manifested in her. So, you know, I didn't have very long in terms of chronological time, but the impact of meeting her and the kind of connections with her and just seeing the way she operated, you know, the way she was with herself and the way she was with people, and she didn't hurry and she didn't rush. There was never a problem about anything, you know. Or, you know, we were in social situations. We went to somebody's house. Somebody had had some kind of a success, and so they bought a... It would be like buying an apartment. But for them, it was like huge success, you know. For us, you know, it would have been like a modest thing, you know, very modest thing. I mean, it's a little bit like me celebrating my hermitage, you know. It's not a fancy thing, but it's, for him, he was so excited, you know. So the whole clan gathered, and it felt like a cocktail party, you know. Everyone was talking, and they were drinking. I don't know what they were drinking. And there was food everywhere, and there was, you know, this fancy stereo equipment, and this, you know, it was a, it was a nice apartment that he bought. And I was I was cold, holding Deepama's shoes, and we were walking up a set of stairs, and she walked right through this kind of cacophony of, of humanity into the house, into the apartment, went right to the Buddha, and bowed. And it wasn't... It, it was... It was that her focus was so clear... It wasn't that she was ignoring people or that she wasn't interested in people. It's just that her focus was so clear that it's like she just moved right through the noise, the people, the hustle, the bustle, the excitement, the and just went right to the Buddha and bowed. And that was her way of celebrating. It was so simple, but it knocked me out. You know, it was so powerful. She was not pulled around by what was considered acceptable social activity. And then, you know, we would come over to her house. Now, her house, you know, you think my house is tiny. Her house was half the size of my house. And she lived there with her daughter and her grandson. 
okay? The kitchen was half the size of my kitchen. And it was right off of a courtyard. And, you know, there was there were four layers of people in a courtyard, you know. And it just felt like it was a light-filled place. It was just amazing. And we'd go and we'd hang out with her and we'd ask her questions. And when we left, she would hold our hands with hold our head with her hands with her like you know her hands were like this big you know she's just tiny just tiny and she'd blow over our head and chant something I have no idea what she was chanting and it just felt like you were standing under this waterfall of love you know just this incredible blessing incredible blessing such an incredible blessing so I remember Jack was saying, you know, he and Manindraji were talking to a group of students, and it looked like Deepama was in the back and she was asleep, you know. And Manindraji was saying, I can't remember what Manindraji was saying. Classically, it is said that only Buddhas, Buddhas are only male. That's a kind of classical teaching that comes through the scriptures and is repeated around. And so a student, I think, was asking Manindraji to talk about this. And Manindraji started talking about this. And they thought Deepama was in the back asleep. And she sat bolt upright, and she said, in this incredible loud voice, she said, I can do anything a man can do. And the whole group just kind of broke apart laughing, because first of all, they realized that it was true. And 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 sec- it just it just you know it was just like totally out of the blue. It was not expected, you know. So she was fierce, you know. She did not muck around, but she was also incredibly loving, you know, incredibly loving. And I remember hearing, you know, when Jack was talking, or one of the stories that I heard about her where she said that for her, mindfulness and love were those two sides of the same thing. And that when she looked in her mind, that's all she saw, was mindfulness and love. That's all that was there. And for me, that was so deeply affirming, because it was also the way I experienced things, you know. That mindfulness and love are two aspects of the same thing. Mindfulness has the observational quality to it, Love has the embracing warmth quality to it. Both are inclusive of everything. They're not exclusive. They do not select what they are attentive to. There's another faculty of mind which is discerning and can select. But mindfulness and love are not exclusive and selective. They're present. And they're two aspects of the same thing. So, for me, I think the thing about Deepama was she really let me know what love is. And also, it was like this peaceful stillness. It was like she was this huge, vast ocean, you know? So her physical body was tiny, but her spacious presence was like this vast, still ocean. And it's like, it just didn't move. It wasn't going anywhere. It didn't do anything. It was just... It was just pervading everything. 
So to feel that, you know, to actually feel the effect of that, it really had a quickening for me in in understanding the importance of meditation and what it actually can bring about. That it can bring about that level of peace and stillness and clarity and and you know for like many you know my whole relationship with what love was has been an evolutionary journey you know I didn't have an automatic on switch where I could just access it and turn it on but meeting her and getting a feeling of that it's like oh I have a memory a body memory now of what love is that I can tune into by just remembering Deepama and what it was like being in her presence. And so I I would use that in my meditation practice kind of as a place of returning to. So I planted this tree, you know, and when I planted it, I think it was the year after she'd actually died, and I just planted it with a couple of sisters in the back field of Amravati, and it was an oak sapling. And, you know, when oak saplings are saplings, they just look like a stick. You know, they're just... They don't at all look like a tree. You know, they're just really, really tiny. So we planted it in the Buddha grove, and um, I'd bring that picture, and I'd, I'd perch it in, in, in the, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the tree, and I'd walk back and forth around the tree and do walking meditation, and I chant, and and so, and you know, there was I there was a lot of suffering for me in in in, in the monastery for for a variety of reasons, some of which I didn't really understand until much more recently, in terms of some of the some of the stuff that we were actually trying to navigate. So, but every time I would take the picture and I'd stick it in the tree and I would chant, you know, I would just, I would feel this kind of wash of loving kindness come through me and feel again a sense of ground that I had the resource to meet what was arising. You know, that I could, I could meet it. I could actually practice with it. And then, you know, the tree grew. That's what they do, they grow. And then I went away, I was in Australia and back and forth, and so I hadn't been living permanently in Amravati for five years, and and I had never marked the tree, so there was nothing, I didn't, you know, there was no marking on it. So I came back, and I wasn't sure which tree it was, you know, because there were many trees out in that back field. So, but the tree had kind of this loving energy to it, you know, so it developed this loving energy to it that I could feel, you know, when I was doing the meditation or walking. So, you know, I went to each tree and I would press my back into the tree. And, you know, the, most trees felt like trees. You know, they're trees and they're hard and they have resistance and this is a tree. But I got to one tree and I felt like I was standing under a waterfall of love. And it's like, oh, I'm at the right tree, you know. So for me, the tree had a loving energy. And I'd go and I'd press my back into the tree, you know, and... When things were really hard, I'd go hang out with a tree, you know. And so, you know, for, I don't know why, but I didn't talk about Deepama very much, and I didn't talk about the tree. You know, not very many people knew about knew about her or the tree. I didn't talk about it. So then it was like, it was in, inside. And then many, many years later, this was like towards the end of when I was staying there, so 
the tree was close to 20 years old. And a 20-year-old tree is a big tree, you know. And I was having a meal. Somebody had invited me and another sister to go over to a friend's house and have Donna. We were having Donna, and a friend was talking about this mother tree that was in the Buddha grove. And my eyes opened up. I said, oh, and exactly where? Where exactly is this mother tree? And she told me. And it's like she had found it by its loving energy herself and named it the mother tree without ever having heard anything about Deepama or who it had been planted for, you know. So that to me was like, you know, it's not just my own projection onto the tree, you know. There's somebody else who can feel something about that tree. Special. So when I I left to go to Australia, I left because the circumstances that were arising for me were like more than I felt like I had the capacity to meet in that context with the resources that I had. So I left because I, I needed another context to work with what was arising. And before I went to Australia, I took the Bodhisattva vows with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And it felt like that really had a big impact on my practice. Because, you know, I was introduced to the Dhamma when I was 17. And from the time I was first introduced to the Dhamma, I had this incredible sense of, I just wanted to be enlightened, I just wanted to be free. And so it was like, you know, nibbana or bust. You know, just get the hell out of here. I just want out, you know. Get me out of here. I just want out. And so for all of those years, I tried with as much kind of determination and tenacity and intensity and all of the qualities that I brought forward. But there were large parts of my life that still had a lot of suffering in them, that my intensity towards wanting to be free and wanting to be out of suffering hadn't actually released or alleviated. So there was an intuition that what was needed was a different approach. And the intuition was there was something in the Bodhisattva vows that was the right approach, and I wasn't actually sure. I didn't have a map to to locate it, but intuitively I felt that was the right thing. So I took the Bodhisattva vows, and I went to Australia, and I noticed that my practice just started shifting, you know. And two of the things that really helped me shift it was the the contact with nature generally, and then these these things that happen with these ants. So, living in Australia, Australia has got like 10,000 different species of ants. And where I was, was in the bush outside of Sydney in a national park, and they had maybe, I don't know, half of the 10,000 different species of ants. And, I mean, I don't know how many they had, but the ground was always crawling for ants. I mean, it was just always, there was ants everywhere. And there were there were a gazillion different kinds of ants. There were sweet, friendly ants and mean, nasty ants and yellow bottomed ants and blue ants and red ants. And I mean, there was just a million kinds of ants. They were just, I couldn't believe how many ants there were. So you're in Australia, you get to know about ants. So there was an ant's nest that had been built right next to the pathway on the meditation, to the way to the meditation hall. 
And I was doing uh, tiger practice, which meant that I was up all hours of the night, not sleeping, not lying down. And so I was up at looking at various things, and I was observing of the ants. So I noticed that the ant nest had fallen spilling over onto the walking path, and I had no malice of heart, but I thought, well, this is the walking path, and maybe we should just kind of brush the ant nest gently so that they'll relocate themselves a number of feet away so that it's not going to be interfering with the people. So I took a broom and I started brushing the ant's nest. Well, the ants came out of the nest charging at me, you know, and they had a kind of a a search-and-destroy mission. And so I saw them all charging at me, you know, the whole ant's nest charging at me, and then I realized, well, you know, this was not very kind. This is their house, and maybe they have as much right to live there as we have to walk here. But it's not really for me to decide. So I went to put the broom back on the building, which was like that far away. And I thought, well, you know, I've made them agitated. I should bring them some kindness. So I walked back into the charging ant's nest with the intention of bringing them metta. Walked right into the middle of the charging ant's nest with my sandals on. And not one of them bit me. Not one ant bit me. And I realized what had happened, you know. Here was an ant's nest that was on red alert because of fear. And they were on a search and destroy mission. And when I came back into the ant's nest with a different intention, they didn't bite me. So that was like, wow, you know, ants can get the difference immediately and change gears immediately. Then there was another ant's nest that was near my my cootie. So I had a tiny little cootie that was just a little bit bigger than the kitchen. I love that cootie. I just absolutely loved that cootie. It was a fabulous cootie. And outside that cootie was a, was a Cadillac walking meditation path. It was like 75 feet long with soft, silky sand, perfectly level, going in the right orientation, in, you know, in terms of, I think it was going east, west, north, south. Whatever the right orientation was, it was going that way. And so I would go walking on my walking meditation path all the time. It was just a fabulous path, just fabulous. And my path had another path that connected to it, and that path led down to where the kitchen, where the uh, library was, and then to the meditation hall. And off that adjoining path, maybe about 20 feet away from my walking path, was a bull's ant's nest. Now, the bull's ants were the nasty ants, and they were, like, this big, and they had, like, pitchforks out their front. And you learned about bull's ant really, really, really quick, because they were there was something unbelievable. I mean, they were totally aggressive and territorial if you were in their space. And if they bit you, it was like two weeks of intense sensation. One week, your the bite would swell up to like the size of a golf ball and it would hurt like, like the dickens. And then the second week, it would itch like the dickens. And so it's like you knew you learned bull ants like really, really, really super quick because... You don't mess with the bull ants. So there was a bull's ants nest 
just 20 feet away, or maybe less, 15 feet away from my walking path. Now, I walked on my walking path all the time. I walked in the night, I walked in the day, I walked barefoot, I walked with my eyes closed, I walked backwards, I walked all the time, never worried. Never, ever, 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 ever worried. But when I was on their path, I was extraordinarily alert because it was their path. And I needed to watch out for them because it was their path. Now, they would come on forays onto my path all the time looking for dead bugs. But it was my path. And they stayed out of my way on my path. So, something to me about these ants where they had a sense of respect and boundaries and they could be respectful to you in your space and could completely change on a dime if you came with a different intention that really made me rethink about the way I had been living. Because up until that point I had the feeling that respect was something that you gave when somebody deserved it when they earned it. But I thought, what would happen if I just brought forward respect? Because it's respectful. Independent of whether somebody earns it or not. And what would happen if I brought forward that quality of respect to myself? Independent of what it was that I was feeling that I actually could meet what was arising rather than want to be free of the suffering. And so that had this huge shift in my practice in terms of the way I was relating to things, of trying to be present with something in order to get through the suffering as opposed to just meeting something with care and respect because of the value of caring and respecting. And so it was in that context, coupled with the fact that I felt tremendously safe because of the land welcoming me, that allowed me to open up some of these layers that I didn't have access to. And as I opened up these layers and got to see these things of sadness and anger and self-hatred and how they had been stratified and they opened up into awareness and then could release in awareness. I began to see experience myself as not just somebody who was practicing in nature. You know, it, there was a there was a progression when I first arrived to here I was in a kind of foreign landscape. And then here I was in a, in a foreign landscape that was friendly. And here I was, and it felt like I was practicing with family. And then here nature is, and the sense of me started to soften. And there wasn't a sense of me and it or me and them, or inside and outside, but just nature. Just nature that's arising, just nature. Just nature. It's all just nature that's just arising. And because it was all just nature that was just arising, all of it belonged. 
And because it all belonged, there wasn't a line where the care and the concern and the compassion stopped. It just flowed because there was no edges to where belonging began and ended. It all belonged. It was all part of nature. It all belonged. And so the combination of the experience in nature and being able to meet what was arising in myself, so the psychological developmental work that I was doing in parallel allowed a whole other deep way of touching, meeting, allowing, and letting go of what was there that I had no idea I had identified with. I had buried it. I didn't have access to it. And so the path of practice for me in that context was of lifting off the, the veils that allowed me to see things that I had never seen before, to accept things that I had never accepted before. And then in accepting things, and, and, and there was an ability to then not to have to identify with it. But it came because of the shift in the practice. I wasn't wanting to get free from suffering. I was interested and wanting to meet what was there with care, with respect, with love. Practice is to stay present with what's arising and to clear away the stuff that obstructs us from staying present with what's arising. With a gentle, clear, focused, grounded, embodied approach.